I wanted to go over a few announcements with you before I begin the message today because there's so much going on in the next week. First of all, if you're parents and you have just dismissed your kids to children's ministry, don't go get them after the service. They'll actually be brought back into the worship, into the sanctuary in order to uh, run through a quick rehearsal of some songs that they're working on. And so if, if you'll just stay here, they'll be brought to you after the service. And then, of course, I'm uh, looking forward to this week where we have many things going on to celebrate uh, this, this week of the passion of our Lord. We have the Seder meal on the 5th and then the Good Friday service. I think it says on the uh, on base camp that it's a dinners, but it's a, a, a meeting here at the church at 7 p.m. When in this year, we're just actually going to feature a number of testimonies. Um, I, I brought the topic to a number of people and said, the cross in me in 2023, talk. And so we have a number of members of the church that will be sharing quick testimonies on Good Friday. And uh, then, of course, Easter Sunday is coming next week, and I hope that you'll be here and that you'll bring your friends. There's always that weird uh, pivot point in the life of a young church where at a certain stage when you're a young church, you lose everybody because they go visit their parents on those days. And then as they get older, they make their parents come to church with them. Just so you know, young people, we've, you have made the shift. You have to be here and you have to bring your parents. Stop leaving on, on all the holidays. It's officially the way we always say it, and this never goes well with our family, is you have more time than we do, you come to us. They love it when, they, when we say that. So today we're in Proverbs chapter 24, Proverbs chapter 24, and we just have three points that we find in the text today, and that is all related to the idea of Christian warfare. The first point is a fight, the fight exalted. The second point is the foe exposed. And the third point is the flesh excluded. The fight exalted, the foe exposed, and the flesh excluded. Uh, the first idea is that the fight is exalted. Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time and heat and cold and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story, but it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. And so one of the things we see in Proverbs 24 is this exaltation of godly warfare. Look at verse 5 and 6, for instance, in Proverbs 24. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Look at verse 10 and 11. If you faint in the day of adversity... Your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. And then in verse 24, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. So one of the themes we see in Proverbs 24 is the exaltation of fighting against what? What exactly? Well, that's point number two. The foe exposed. 
In addition to seeing the fight exalted in Proverbs 24, we see the foe, who we are to fight, exposed. Now, you know all of the same verses I do, that we do not, as such, struggle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the darkness and so on and so forth. And yet the text today reminds us that we do indeed find ourselves facing human opposition with spiritual principles behind them. In the Bible, there is not any kind of shying away from the idea that there are good guys and bad guys, and that fits fine within the overall concept that we are all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. It fits fine within that concept because within that concept are people who make choices. And in this proverb, in this chapter of Proverbs, we're given a category of people who are described as the wicked or evil men. Look at verse 1 through 2. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. Look at verses 8 through 9. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. Look at verse 15. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Look at verses 19 and 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And look at verses 24 through 25. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. So we've got the fight exalted, and now we've got the foe exposed. There is a group of people that the Bible goes out of its way to label as evil men or the wicked. And the question that we should ask as we're thinking about this is what is it exactly that makes these sinners stand out from your garden variety sinner? Well, the Bible does indeed teach that all men are sinners, but it also teaches that some are engaged in what I will call premeditated predation. Premeditated predation. Premeditated means planned. Predation means predatory behavior, preying on others. And what we see in this text and in many others is, is that when someone reaches a certain point, not merely when we each in our own flesh, in our own stupidity, hurt each other reflexively in sin, but there can be another point beyond that that individuals reach where they actively plot and scheme to advance themselves by doing harm to others. That's what is meant by the wicked or the evil man, premeditated predatory behavior. And we see this described in chapter 24. For instance, in verse 2, it says of the wicked, their hearts devise violence. In verse 8, whoever plans to do evil. And in verse 15, lie not in wait as a wicked man does against the dwelling of the righteous. And so we are all sinners. We all hurt people in our sin, but there is a different category of sinner. The Bible calls the wicked or the evil man. And the thing that most categorizes this individual is an intention to climb up 
whatever rank they are seeking to accomplish on the backs of others. And I think it's very difficult for us, just average people, to understand that. That is not something that the average person, at least in this uh, post-Christian culture, does. Like We have all been sort of culturally taught that you don't hurt people this way. And we're, we're having to come up with terms to describe this apart from any notion of God. And so we come up with terms like sociopath. Or a phrase like the dark triad that is sort of subclinical narcissism and subclinical psychopathy and Machiavellianism is sort of the clinical definition of this. And what all we're doing is we're saying there's a category of people who it's not that they hate others actively. They simply don't matter to them. They live in a zero-sum world. People aren't important. They're simply cannon fodder. They're simply fuel for whatever engine drives them, and so there is the category of people the Bible wants us to be aware that they're not actively trying. They don't, they don't care about people enough to hate them. They simply see others as a thing to use to get what they want. Now, one thing, just so we're understanding the situation clearly, we, psychology right now, as it, and I think that this stuff is, is pretty sound. I don't think all psychology is, but I think the dark triad and these sorts of things is reasonably sound insofar as it can be. But what we need to understand is, is that these things are reported by psychiatrists as being exceptionally rare. A relatively small percentage of people possess these characteristics. And I will just tell you, no, these are viral and the reason why they are rare now is the tremendous impact that the gospel has had on our culture for thousands of years. These behaviors are not rare. What we're seeing right now is the emergence of a new way, which is really an old way, of regarding the world and others. And that being might makes right. And so we're seeing it now, and I think we would all say, like, this is pretty rare. I don't know if I know many people like this. It's like, well... Hopefully, your kids can say that when they're your age. But there's no indicator, unless we repent and trust Christ, that that will be the case. Because this used to not simply be the exceptional way a person thought. This used to be the way people thought. And if you know your history, you know that I'm right about that. These people can be summarized in another proverb, not in chapter 24, but in, verse, in chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 16, for the wicked cannot sleep unless they do evil, and they are deprived of sleep unless they make someone stumble and fall. So a summary of the first two points, we see the fight exalted, and we see the foe exposed. We see basically two ideas. There are individuals who, in addition to simply being sinners, as we all are, have by their own choice walked into a pathway where they are premeditatively using others to advance their own agenda. And you'll find these people in business, and you'll find these people in the inner city. You'll find these people with money, and you'll find these people without money. You'll find these people as educated and not educated. You'll find these people in both genders, in every socioeconomic realm, in every category of life. There are people who simply prey on others to advance themselves. And the Christian is called to oppose that. And we have seen in the text today in two main ways. Rebuke the wicked and rescue the perishing. 
rebuke the wicked and rescue those who are being preyed upon. This is what the text has shown us so far. There are people who devise violence and plan to do evil, and they lie in wait against the righteous, and those folks should be rebuked. And the people who are being led away to the slaughter should be rescued. That's what we've seen so far. Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarized it this way. If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. You know, there's an ancient archetypal story that is sort of like the essence of Christianity. And it is, kill the dragon, rescue the princess, right? Kill the dragon, rescue the princess. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus killing the dragon and rescuing the princess. You know, there's really only three places to be in that story. You can either be the princess, the the knight, or the dragon. Is it possible that over time our church has essentially forgotten that Jesus saves people to transform them from princesses into knights. Are we all just a bunch of soft, addled, anxious princesses? Do we know that it is not only a responsibility, but a privilege and a way of abiding with our Lord to fight alongside him against the evil and the wicked. I, doing research for this sermon, Googled that trope and started looking at different Christian articles about it. And I found a Christian article that was addressed to men and it said, slaying the dragon. And I thought, well, this sounds promising. And so I clicked on the article and I won't give the person's name, they were certainly well-meaning. But the article was simply this, there are dragons in our life that are keeping us from being closer to the Lord and we must slay those dragons. And I wanted to say, what's keeping you close from being closer to the Lord is he is out rescuing people and you are in front of the mirror putting on makeup. (laughs) You are a princess, sir. If you want to be close to the Lord, join him in the fight against the foe. If you want to walk with Christ, join him in his work as rescuer in chief. So those are the first two points. The fight exalted, the foe exposed, and the third point, the flesh excluded. There's a third stream of information in Proverbs 24. And that is to ensure that as we fight the enemy, we do not stoop to the enemy's level. It is a great temptation, and I've seen it throughout my life. Uh, My young years were in a very politically oriented Southern Baptist church that was on either side of the liberal conservative theological divide that occurred within within the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 70s and 80s. Long story short on that is, is that in a relatively quick period of time, the entire Southern Baptist Convention went full-blown Methodist in terms of abandoning belief in the inerrancy of Scripture and so on. And so even at an institutional level, 
the majority of the seminaries and so on and so forth with gone extremely left in their understanding of God's word in particular. And there were conservative men who rose up and said, no, we're not going to do this. And they did what actually has never been done in the history of denominations. And they, they literally brought a denomination back from liberalism to conservatism. But time has shown that they did not successfully remain unstained from the battle, but just took on the same tactics that the enemy was using. And this is a great danger when you engage in war against a ruthless, predatory enemy. The great danger is that you and I will start fighting in the flesh. And we may or may not win the battle or the vote or the election or the referendum. But if we have waged war in the flesh, I'll tell you who really won. The Prince of Darkness, Grimm. So the third idea in this passage is, yes, there's a fight to be exalted in. It's a glorious fight. It's a fight that our Lord Jesus is engaged in. And yes, there is a foe who needs to be rebuked. And there are people who are victims of this foe who need to be rescued. But we need to be sure that we are fighting not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is engaged in a battle against a group of leaders who have hijacked the heart of the Corinthians. And in chapter 11, he sarcastically calls them super apostles. It's a completely demeaning, cynical use of sarcasm. It's like these super apostles, hyper apostles in the Greek and he is dealing with these people. He is rebuking them. And he's attempting to rescue the Corinthians from their predation. They are wolves. They are snakes. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul actually says that these super apostles are acting like serpents trying to deceive Eve. The Corinthian church being Eve. So Paul's situation with the Corinthians directly mirrors all of the data we see in Proverbs 24. The foe is the same. The fight is the same. He is engaged in the two activities commended in this passage. He's attempting to rescue the princess and kill the dragon. But he gives us explicitly what I think Proverbs gives us implicitly, and that is you got to fight a certain way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war to the flesh, according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He means they're in the flesh. We are walking in the flesh. We are not waging war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so Paul is engaged in the fight and he's fighting the same person, the same kinds of people that Proverbs 24 is talking about, but he's also making it clear, I will not engage in this fight in a way that mirrors the way my enemy fights. 
And so in Proverbs 24, the third stream of data, in addition to showing us the foe and the fight, is to say, not in the flesh. Do not engage in this battle in the flesh. And the first idea represented in Proverbs 24 about this, about this notion of not fighting in the flesh is that you need the strength that can only come from wisdom. You need the strength that can only come from wisdom. Look at verse 5 and 6 of Proverbs 24. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. The kind of strength we need for the battle comes from wisdom. And where does wisdom come from? Wisdom comes theologically, vertically, from the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Wisdom comes from an understanding of God's word. And explicitly mentioned in this text, wisdom comes from counsel. Now, just so we're clear, Proverbs is big on the idea that wisdom makes you strong. And so no matter your physical state, even your intellectual state, if you lack wisdom, you are not as strong as you think you are. And if you have wisdom, you may be stronger than you think you are. And dear saints, can we please understand that just because someone's good at talking, you know, you hear me talk and you think, well, I don't, I don't, I don't think I could do that for 27 years and just talk and talk and talk. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. That is not what wins. That is not even true strength. True strength is wisdom. And if you have it, Proverbs says that a wise man, a wise person is full of strength. Ecclesiastes 7.19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And so one of the points of encouragement this morning would be, you know, you've walked with the Lord for some time. You've read his word. You've attended all of the Bible studies. You've done all the stuff. You were faithful in, in attending worship regularly. You were faithful in attending studies of the word lately. Do you know that you are stronger than 10 rulers? Do you know that you might have been raised up for such a time as this? Do you know that if you have wisdom from the Lord, you have more than a fighting chance? You are more than a conqueror. The emphasis on wisdom also tells us something about the nature of the battle. Listen again to Paul's description. I feel like this is a point that needs to be clarified again and again and again, especially in days where the conflict is so palpable. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against the flesh or according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Now, this is the part I want you to listen to and, and be instructed by. Have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Strongholds. What is a stronghold? Well, a stronghold, Paul says in the next verse, is an argument and a lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It's a thought. Strongholds are arguments, opinions, and thoughts. Well, how do you fight arguments, opinions, and thoughts? Not with the sword, but with the sword of the Lord. 
strongholds, the very things that threaten us the most, the very places where all of the predators hide are in these lofty opinions, these attitudes, these ideas. You don't use physical force to contend against those things. You use the word of the Lord. To do battle against these things, you do not need swords. You need the sword that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Stop looking at gifting as an indicator of who should be fighting in this fight against these foes and start looking at, do I know the word? Have I submitted myself to the word? Have I walked in the word? Proverbs 21, 22 says, A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. So we have a foe to fight. The fight itself is a glorious call to follow Jesus and to doing things that matter. And now we understand one thing. We don't fight in the flesh with physical weapons. We fight in the spirit with the very word of God. Pursue wisdom. Seek wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Not just so that you'll know what car to buy or how quickly to pay off your house or how to raise your kids. Seek wisdom so that you'll be able to rescue the perishing who are staggering toward death. Seek wisdom so that you'll be able to rebuke the wicked. And then one day your children will rise up and call you blessed because you took a stand and you did it in the spirit. As we've journeyed through Proverbs, we've seen that wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord and wisdom comes from the knowledge of God's word. But this passage in Proverbs 24 also tells us about the importance of counselors. For by his wise guidance, you can wage your war. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. All right, we're going to be hard-pressed for time, so I can't support this ideal fully. But in the ancient times, warfare was essentially the activity of the young and the old in partnership. It was an activity of gender cooperation. By the way, as soon as there is a hot war again in our culture... Watch what feminism, watch how it disappears. As soon as people have to go and die, watch all claims of equity and equality disappear immediately, as they should. Warfare in ancient times was essentially the cooperation of both gender and generation. And one of the great challenges of fighting is to get everybody to sort of agree on who the enemy is and then to get our young people who are the ones who need to do the fighting equipped with the wisdom they need to do the fighting. Proverbs 20, 29 says, the glory of young men is their strength. We're, they're the ones we're sending to do the majority of the fighting on every front including the spiritual. We want our young people to be engaged in this glorious fight. We want our young people to stand up to these terrible foes. We want them to know how to rebuke the wicked. We want them to know how to rescue the perishing. And it is the glory of a young person in their strength to do that. But it is the splendor, Proverbs 20, 29 says, it is the splendor of old men to have gray hair. And gray hair, as you know, is a metaphor, though not always an absolute projection, of wisdom. 
And so what, is, what we're seeing in Proverbs 24 is not only that we should fight in wisdom, in the spirit, with the word, but that it should be an intergenerational battle. And that while we send our young people, we equip them. They have to be humble enough to know they don't know what they need to know. They have to be humble enough to proactively seek wisdom from people who do know. They have to be humble enough to listen to the wisdom that's presented. And now I'm on the other side of the coin. I don't know if there are more gray or not grays right now. It's kind of a tie. But I keep telling my wife, and she's such a doer, and she, she loves to be busy, but I keep telling my wife is what we've got to have is we've got to have margin because our call for the rest of our time is to give away truth. We need to position ourselves in a status where we can respond when people need truth. We need to position our lives so that when people are dealing with a foe, they know they can come to us and receive counsel. In December of 1874, in his paper, The Sword and the Trowel, Charles Spurgeon pins this challenge to young people. You will not have another youth. Soon it will not be in your power to offer, offer to God your beauty and freshness. One occasionally sees in certain places announcements such as this, smart young men wanted for the guards. Well, I am a recruiting sergeant, my colors are crimson, and I am eager to enlist both young men and women. I would be glad if I could do a bit of business and gather up recruits for Christ. Young men and women, step forward and fill the places of your fathers and mothers. And I would say the same thing to older men and women you will not have another old age. You will not have another period of time where you actually have some clue about what in the world is going on and just lack the energy to do anything about it. One of the tricks, young people, if you're interested in wisdom, is to understand that you get to a certain age, you just don't want to argue anymore. And so if you would like information. If you would like wisdom, I'd be happy to give it. This is, I speak, I think I speak for everybody in my bracket. Happy to give it. Happy to humbly give it. Happy to give it with fear and trembling. Not always sure that I'm right, but what I won't do anymore is deal with your pride. Like if you just want to argue and, and so forth, and by the way, I don't, I'm not saying that this is a thing I experience very often, but if you want to argue and push back, go do it your way you'll probably be the wisest of all of us because you'll be the most hurt and broken. Warfare is an intersection of generational strength and generational wisdom, and the church can't do this vital mission unless we do it together. And that's actually what the book of Proverbs is. It's the cooperation between generations. It's a conversation between father and son, and they both have the singular goal of building up the city of God for the glory of God. That's the idea. It's an intergenerational war council, city planning, shalom building book. Young and old people have got to work together. Secondly, again, the flesh is excluded. How to not fight. Don't fight with all these other measures of strength. Fight with the strength of the Lord. Fight in God's wisdom. Fight with God's word. And number two, pay special attention to your attitudes. 
Look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn his anger away from him. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. There are in this section at least three attitudes that we should not have any role or room for as we fight these foes. And the first one is, do not gloat over fallen foes. Do not gloat over fallen foes. You see that in verse 17? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Number one, this is simply a reminder that God hates pride more than anything. And he loves humility more than anything. Your enemies will fall. It is destined that they will fall. They will not stand. This text says that the lamp of the wicked will be put out. And as such, Christians need to know how to be good winners. There are all kinds of catastrophes awaiting the wicked. You will see them come to pass. You may not see all of them come to pass. You will see some come to pass. You are even seeing some come to pass. Now, when you see them fall, do not get puffed up. The imagery in this verse has some idea of God punishing the wicked for their premeditated predation and suddenly smelling pride coming in the other camp and turning and saying, well, maybe I should go deal with that. So the first attitude, the first carnal attitude that should be excluded in the fight is gloating. Think of it this way. There are all these uh, ridiculous sporting events that are happening now. As soon as the pay-per-view thing started being able to monetize online, you can now like, get a YouTuber to fight like a squirrel and like sell videos, you know, and there'll be enough people to watch it, you know, enough people pay their $49.99 and watch this thing, right, this spectacle. And I imagine we're just, there's just no end to these. And I think the one that is the next thing you can kind of see in the water is like all of these retired athletes doing things. And so suppose I decided to be a kind of predatory dude and sort of just like just made a money run. Here's what I would do. I would find the cockiest group of 12-year-olds on a football team, the most poorly behaved. I would recruit them. I'd make them a national team. And I would just fill social media with all of their cocky stupidity, their little scrawny-armed, tough guy, 12-year-old football stupidity. And I would, like, make that a year worth of viral cringe, right? And then... Simultaneous to that, I'd secretly be signing freshly retired NFL players. Like guys like 33 years old, you know, world-class athletes. And I would sign a roster of those guys. And then after a year of feeding the public the cringy outrage of these cocky 12-year-olds, I would announce a pay-per-view. The 12-year-olds versus the 33-year-old NFL players. Now, I would make millions. I would also make God mad at me. <clears throat> Can you imagine 
being the brother of one of these players or the wife of one of these players, can you imagine going to that game and even for a second being cocky or pleased that your 33-year-old elite athlete, freshly retired offensive lineman husband just pancaked a cocky 12-year-old. It's like you would have to be a terrible person to do that. Friends, listen. Do you understand that God is fighting for us? There is no match. This isn't close. This isn't suspenseful. It is as suspenseful as your faith is weak. That's it. The actual facts are established. The serpent's head will be crushed. God will win. And no matter how cringy our enemies, no matter how ferocious they may appear, God will not only win, he will dominate. There is no need to gloat. Be good winners. The next thing we see is in verse 19. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Here is a remarkable idea, and that is, is that you are fretting yourself. And this could be its own idea and message and so forth. It's that when you see envy and fretting and um, uh, gloating, it's, it's assumed that you have control over those things and that those are very strong emotions, but that you actually have control. And in this particular case, the idea is simply this. If you have any anxiety over the potential victory of the enemy, if you are fretting yourself, you can be sure you are in the flesh. Your anxiousness over the outcome of this battle is not from God. The battle is the Lord's, and you do not need to fret yourself. Now, I can tell you right away that if you have not expunged these two attitudes, and we'll get to the third, when you do fight your enemy, something will not ring true. If you are secretly a gloating, prideful person, or secretly quite anxious about the outcome of this battle, you will not fight well. There will be something that rings through in your tone, in your voice, in your posture, in the words you choose that does not come from the Spirit of God. So one of the reasons to get rid of these attitudes is like it's actually just going to make you worse at the fight itself. And the third attitude to avoid is envy. Second half of verse 19. Be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future the lamp of the wicked will be put out. You'll see this warning earlier in verse 1 of this same chapter. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. The truth is, is the reason why we would ever envy these men is we might, we think that they're going to get away with it. In Psalm 73, Asaph said, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They're even fooling God's people. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? These people are so arrogant. And behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, Asaph thinks. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And so how do you get to a position where you envy the wicked? Well, God's actively disciplining you because you're one of his kids. And he disciplines those whom he loves. And so you're living like a normal life, a normal life with a normal father, a normal relationship with the father. You're a little twerp sometimes. God swats you. You get back in line. This is how life goes. Your life is full of just generalized friction. But what if there was another place to be? And that is God has given them up to their passions and removed all friction that could possibly slow them down from their fast rail train to damnation. Well, from your little and my little disciplined, hobbling, kind of getting along, struggling through life position, you see these people on this, this uh, what's it, the bullet train, and you think, oh my goodness, look at the smooth ride they're having. Yeah, I mean, but you know where the ride goes, right? So don't gloat. Don't fret. Don't envy. This is all going as planned. This is all working exactly as God has planned for it to work. And so though we walk in the flesh, as Paul says, we do not wage war against in the flesh. So I want to take you back to this idea of rescuing. Jesus Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and he is the world's foremost rescuer. The text says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Jesus did not faint. He endured the cross, forsaking its shame for the joy set before him. And he did the work, the work necessary to rescue you from not only the dragon, but also from God's wrath. But friends, I want to think, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ is not the only one who has rescued you. Kind of sketchy sounding. Because Jesus Christ turns princesses into knights. And so the truth is, is that you and I stand here today having been rescued by Christian men and women for thousands of years who did not faint in the day of adversity. I have thousands of books, way more books than I'll ever read. A surprising number, because they're mostly old, a surprising number of those books were paid for with some kind of serious blood and suffering. Our lives as we know them today exist as we know them today in large part because men and women for thousands of years did not faint on the day of adversity. 
You've been rescued not only from sin, but from an ancient world dominated by sin, a world where might made right, a world of superstition and magic words, a world full of arbitrary and capricious gods. You have been rescued not only from sin, but from a world that had no sense of progress because it had a deep skepticism toward anything new. It was a world dominated by the tall poppy syndrome, by envy and greed and violence. You were rescued from a world where forcing yourself on another person was not wrong, where slavery was not wrong, a world without due process, a world without law enforcement, a world without the rule of law, a world without property rights, a world without the right to privacy. You were rescued from an illiterate world where only the rich could learn, a world kept in darkness. For thousands of years, men and women have joined Jesus in standing up to the premeditating predators. They have defied kings. They have defied murderous popes. They endured horrific martyrdoms. They mastered new languages, crossed seas, buried their wives and children on foreign shores. You were rescued by people who denied their desires, abandoned their dreams, slayed their lusts, left their friends, and tossed their comfort at the feet of Jesus for the sake of something better. You've been rescued by people who have endured betrayals that we can't imagine, diseases and doubts. And so the truth is, is that you and I live in a world today paved by many brave men and women who for thousands of years obeyed the calls in Proverbs 24. The call to the fight against the foe but not in the flesh. And I'm done. Motivate. I really don't think preaching should be motivational. I think it should be informational. I just told you the truth. Do with it what you will. The truth is, is that through many people being transformed from princesses into knights, we live in a world that is much softer and kinder than the one that they were born into. Will we join them? In some way or another, will we join them? Will we rebuke the wicked? Will we rescue the perishing? Will we fight with the sword of the spirit? Will we be strengthened in wisdom? Will we stand together as young and old? Will we refuse to fight in the flesh? even though our flesh is screaming for it to be used, will we renounce underhanded tactics of this world and fight in weakness and reliance on Jesus? Will we refuse gloating? Will we refuse fretting? Will we refuse envy? Will we fight with Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father and has promised to reign until every single one of his enemies are made his footstool? Chesterton said it this way, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. The thing he's guarding, the thing he's protecting. We have Christ 
and his name and his glory behind us. We have the future church behind us. We have our children and our children's children and thousands and millions of people that no one cares about behind us. Proverbs 24, 24. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples and abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. May our children raise up one day and call us blessed. Let me pray and then we'll do the Lord's prayer, the Lord's table. What a privilege we have, Lord, to experience firsthand everything you say about yourself and to test it on the battleground, Lord. What a privilege to join you there and to engage in the beautiful, important, glorious work of refuting evil and rescuing broken, hurting people. People who are being tread upon and abused and misused over and over again. What a privilege to join you in the work that is deco of the gospel itself. Where you stood, Lord, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You rebuked the wicked and you rebuked it fully by saying from the cross, it is finished. And you, Lord, rescue broken and contrite spirits. And you turn no one back who comes and pleads to be saved in your name. And so now we turn to this table. The cup that represents your blood. The bread that represents your body. Given to us freely as an instrument, as the instrument of salvation. So Lord, now let us participate. And God, in your spirit, Give us courage, give us faith. In Jesus' name we pray.